Take some notes. Okay. If you don't, they're in the back. We should have enough. Does anybody else need any? Isaac will grab you one. Other lazy bums. You got another one. All right. Anybody have an extra pen? Okay. There you go. You got it. All right. So. As you guys are getting yourself settled and you're starting to get all your, your stuff in order, you got your Bibles, go ahead and open up to Judges chapter 6. Judges chapter 6. Genesis, Exodus, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges chapter 6. That's where we're going. Yeah. Judges? Judges. Or Judges. 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 We can do that one. That'd be good. That's a good Jug Judges. There you go. Okay. Alright, so alright, so there's there's a couple things just to keep in mind um, before we begin. Alright, so this is gonna be um, a couple there's three messages. We're gonna be doing a chapter each week. We're gonna go through chapter six tonight. And so wherever you're at, again, like I prayed earlier, wherever you're at, whatever's going on, just grab whatever you can. Um, many of us have heard the story of Gideon before. Uh, if you've grown up in church and you've been a part of any sort of Sunday school type thing growing up through church, eventually you'll hit the, the story of Gideon. It's a very cool story, very cool for kids. There's a lot of things you could do. I was even talking to Pastor Aaron about some of the things that he did in kids club. And, uh, and he's like, hey, you could do it if you want. And I said, hmm, maybe. That'll be kind of fun. It'll be a little chaotic. And you, some of you guys might like get some black eyes and stuff. So that'd be, I know you all would be up for it. So maybe that'll happen next week. As long as you can hit Jane. As long as you can hit Jane. Okay. All right. So Jane will be, yeah. <laughs> Jane will be here. That's where you will be. Okay. Um, but just grab whatever you can. There's some things that are going to be a little bit deeper. And so for those of you that are in junior high, uh, there's going to be things you're just not going to quite understand. That's okay. One of the things you have to understand when it comes to reading the Bible, if you're newer to the Bible, if you're younger and you're newer to the Bible, if you've not really gotten to a routine of reading, is that the Spirit of God is always teaching, always. And there's always something that will stand out to you that you need to write down. It's very important that you write it down. I left everything blank and wide open so you can just write down some basic notes. But it's very important that you do that. I know for me... I had to start early on, and as God grew me up physically, there were more and more things that I began to write down that I could see, oh, this could really apply to my life. So don't just listen to this as if it's some sort of another Sunday school story. These are messages that God directly wants to talk to you about. There are things in this chapter that he wants to meet you right where you are with the things that you are dealing with right now in your family, with your friends, school, stuff that's going on. So pay attention. When something comes up that really catches your attention, write it down and pay attention to it because it will be something that God is wanting you to know today that he wants you to apply to your life. Okay, so there's a couple of things. So we're starting off with our first point, context. It's context. So all of our points tonight have the letter C. 
Um, and so context, there's a couple of things that I wanted you to know before getting into the context of even the, the chapter itself. So when you look at the book of Judges in general, uh, this deals with Israel's cycles of sin after they entered in and conquered the promised land under the command of Joshua. And when you really study this book out, you'll find that there are seven cycles of this sin. So it's, it's like a giant circle. So you have, they come in, they take the promised land, things are going great and everything's awesome. And then they forsake God and they start doing their own thing, worshiping themselves and other gods, and they fall into sin. And so then you start coming down and they hit the bottom where things are just really, really bad. And when things are really bad, then they cry out to God. God, things are bad. I need you. And so then God loves them. It's his people. And he says, okay. So he raises up a deliverer to go in and deliver his people from bondage, similar to what he did with Moses out of Egypt. And that deliverer, that, that judge would come in and he'd rescue God's people and they would repent. And they're like, I love you, God. You're amazing. You're so awesome. And they would worship him for a period of time. And then there'd come a point where they would forget God and they wouldn't love him and they'd walk away from him and they'd fall into sin again. And then things would go bad and they would just get really, really bad. They're like, oh God, we need you. And God's like, okay, I love you. I'll send somebody. Okay, go. God, you're amazing. And then, and so it's just like, I mean, constant. And if you've been a Christian for any period of time, you have struggled with this. And I don't know what it is about human nature. I hate it about myself. When things get hard and things get bad, I tend to be closer to the Lord. And what I've learned over my years so far is that I don't just need the Lord when things are bad. I need him when things are good. And I don't want to keep going back into the muck and the mire and the mud of my sin and my struggles. And the only way that I can prevent that is if I worship the Lord when things are good. And I realize that things are only good because of God's grace and mercy. And this is what Israel needed to learn. And it was very difficult for them to learn that, but this is what they needed to learn. And so there's seven cycles where they go through rebellion. Then there's retribution for their rebellion. There's repentance, there's restoration, and then there's rest and there's peace. And then they go back to rebellion again. And so if they wouldn't just keep doing this over and over again, then they would actually be able to walk with the Lord. And this is the same for you. The reason why you still struggle with sin is because you don't realize how much you really need the Lord. And it's very important that you guys get that. The other big reason why they struggled during this time is because it says in Judges 17, verse 6. You can just write down the reference if you want. This is a great summation, um, good theme verse, I guess you could say, for the book of Judges. And that is, in those days there was no king in Israel, but every man did that which was right in his own eyes. That is the book of Judges. And honestly, that is the world that we live in today. No one wants to yield to God's authority. Our world wants nothing to do with God, and everybody wants to do what's right in their own eyes. And you can just tell. I mean, the things that are happening now are just symptoms of a deeper heart issue. When you have people that think that just because one day they wake up and they realize, I don't care what biological gender I am, I'm going to just go ahead and be the opposite. Or I'm going to say that I have no gender. And I'm going to say that my gender has nothing to do with with, you know, thinking even gender and sex are completely different. Like, that's unbelievable. That's ridiculous. But yet, we live in a world where every man is doing that which is right in their own eyes. If you wake up in the morning and decide, you know what, I'm perfect, well, then you're perfect. If you wake up in the morning and say, you know what, I'm no longer a boy, I'm now a girl, then that's, that's it. And how dare you even approach that person and say that they're insane when they really are. 
I mean, there's so many things that are just going wrong in our world today. It's unstinking believable. And it is just going to get worse and worse and worse. We are living in the time, in the spirit of the age of the book of Judges. And so this is why I think it's very appropriate for us to get into this book a little bit, especially with Gideon. Now, the people of Israel, the people of God, they were oppressed and persecuted at this time where you have Gideon on the scene. They were the minority against the world and the ways of the world. They were conquered by their enemies. And God would do this over and over until God grabbed the attention of a man or a woman to be used for his glory and for his people. The first judge in this book was Othniel, and then Ehud, and then Shamgar, which Pastor Eddie preached on this past Sunday, and then Deborah. And then after Deborah, you've got Gideon. And this Gideon guy is a guy we need to take a look at. So this is very, very important. And so Israel was oppressed and they were persecuted. So let's go ahead and read verse 1 and verse 2, and let's kind of work our way through this chapter a little bit. All right, so take a look at this. Judges chapter 6, and somebody give me a reader for verse 1 and verse 2. Who would like to read? Lillian, go for it. And the children of Israel did evil in sight of the Lord. And the Lord delivered them into the hand of Midian seven years. And the hand of Midian prevailed against Israel. And because of, of the Midianites, the children of Israel made them the dens which are in the mountains and caves and strongholds. Okay, so what do you notice? What are some of the things that are happening here? Israel's being oppressed and persecuted. What were the Midianites doing? I'll give you a hint. It's in verse 1 and verse 2. <laughs> Sam. They were making strongholds and fighting against Israel. Yes. And so they were fighting against them to the point where it says very specifically that the children of Israel made them dens in the mountains and in the caves and in strongholds. So the land of Israel, the Israelites did not have the ability to even live peacefully in the land. They were constantly on the run. Constantly. So they had no peace. Can you imagine not being able to live in your home or in your area, the enemies would come in and say, hey, this is mine now. This house that belongs to your parents, yeah, it's not theirs anymore. It's not mine. Where are we going to live? Not my problem. That's what they were doing to the nation of Israel. Take a look at verse 3. It says, um, and, and so it was when Israel had sown, which means that they planted stuff, food, that the Midianites came up and the Amalekites and the children of the east, even they came up against them and they encamped against them and destroyed the increase of the earth, that's their crops, Till thou come unto Gaza and left no sustenance for Israel, neither sheep, nor ox, nor ass. So what's going on here? What are they destroying? The yeah, the crops. Their ability to even eat anything and to provide anything for their animals. So not only do they not have a place to live, but they don't have anything to eat. I mean, you're talking about basic necessities, basic needs. They, have, they don't have the ability to do that anymore. And so they're hurting. The children of Israel are hurting. They don't have a place to live. They're forced to live in dens, in caves, in the mountains. They can't even provide food for their own household. What about their children, babies, little ones? I mean, they're dying and they're hurting. I mean, this is serious persecution. Now, I want you to understand this because this is not that bad when it comes to us today. Like things are not th this bad for us. I mean, is anyone forcing you out of your home? Is anyone stopping you from having the ability to get food for your family or anything like that? No. And yet this is what they were going through. 
And it's kind of funny. This, I'm going to show you a video. It's kind of funny, but it's kind of not. Because I think we tend to be, as Americans, we're, we're, we're whiners. We are, we are whiners. Let's see if we can get this to go. or that camera camera okay. you know being a Christian it's it's not always easy the things that I've been through um, they're, they're hard to talk about my life has been constant persecution yeah this is this is the first time I've had to talk about this so I don't know just kind of nervous a lot. Okay. I mean, choosing to live for God, there's, there's consequences no one tells you about. The first time I realized I was under persecution was June of 2017. I walked into church and it was it was freezing. I asked them what the temperature was, and they said it was 71. I asked them to raise it up to something a little warmer, and they wouldn't. Sorry. No. I remember walking into the sanctuary. Um, a Sunday morning and some family, some family, some stupid family, I uh, was sitting in my spot. That's what I've been sitting in for years. And so I had to, I looked around, I had to find some other spot. I had to sit in some other chairs. And then just when I thought it couldn't get any worse, um, I was handed uh, communion bread. And it was stale. It was awful. It tasted like cardboard. And I look at the label, and it's not even dairy and gluten-free. This was after I already ate it. And the thing is, I'm not allergic, but I could have been. I could have been. Just last week, I wasn't greeted when I walked through the doors, walked into church. We, we started worshiping and I looked at the screen. I, I couldn't read the words. The, the text was too small. Like, I've got, I'm not perfect 2021 in my eyes is, like, it, I got a headache. I came to worship and it's just not possible. How am I supposed to worship if I can't even read the words on the screen? So his sermon goes long. All my friends are already at Applebee's. <laughs> and all the appetizers are gone. I missed the kickoff. <laughs> they want me to pay full price for my entree? I show up here every Sunday. They forgot to put my birthday in the bulletin. 
and they put some new guy who's been here for, what, three months? Oh, he's in there, but not me. My family's all dressed up, and we stop when we get in to take a photo together. They have this really pretty photo booth. But then I open Instagram to take a photo, and it won't load because the Wi-Fi is too slow. I just don't know if I can be in a place where I'm convicted all the time. I sneezed, and they just said, bless you. They just took God out of bless you. Program times during the week don't fit my kids' sports schedule. It's happy holidays? Where's the Christmas? The sunrise service, are you kidding me? Who does that? I bring my kids to youth group. I go play poker, I come back, I expect the youth pastor to I mean, the dad's so so My kids still don't know I, Jesus. I, I, like, what is he doing? That's his fault. Oh, and get this, we have what golf course to like, the people who can't take this in the long August. This guy picks up a new company for the youth. We've been here for, I don't know, six months. This is one of their scientists in the church. This can't go on. This is... I don't know how you thought that was actually going to be serious up front, but the moment you saw the dude, you should have known this was not going to go. Actually, it's going to be very funny. Anyway, but so I wanted to show you that just because, number one, it's hilarious. Um, but secondly, because I just think that we have things just way too easy. There are so many people that complain about the dumbest things, like the dumbest things. And it's like, are you kidding me? Like, for real? Like, Okay. And when you see what's going on with the nation of Israel at this point in time, they would prepare their land for their crops, their sustenance, and the Midianites would just come in and destroy everything. And not only that, they would destroy the land. So they're not only destroying God's people, but they're destroying the land that God gave them. Now, if you were here for the Israel rally, you would know how important that land is. It's very important that God gave to the nation of Israel. And now here you have them coming in and just destroying everything. And it says to the point where they were impoverished, impoverished. Now, this word impoverished is very, very important. And it says this in, uh, in verse six. Take a look at, actually, let's look at verse five. We stopped at verse, uh, verse four. Verse five, for they came up with their cattle and their tents, and they came as grasshoppers for multitude, for both they and their camels were without number, and they entered into the land to destroy it. And Israel was greatly impoverished because of the Midianites, and the children of Israel cried unto the Lord. So this word impoverished, I looked it up and I thought this was very interesting. Impoverished means that they were reduced to poverty, to make poor, and to exhaust strength, richness, or fertility. They exhausted it. Now, when you exhaust something, what does that mean? Wore out. Wore out. There's nothing left for it. Like there's nothing else. When you are exhausted, you have no energy. When the land is exhausted, it doesn't have the ability to even yield crops anymore. So this is heavy, heavy persecution on the nation of Israel. Heavy persecution on them. And this would have caused them, obviously, as it did, they cried out to the Lord. And here's something that's very important. They didn't belong anywhere. They were strangers and pilgrims. Does that sound familiar? As Christians, we just don't fit in this world. And this is something just for you to kind of contemplate a little bit. If you fit too well in this world, then there's something wrong. If it is too easy for you to live your life as a Christian in this world, there's something wrong. There's something wrong. When you live right, it's going to be difficult. 
When you do what God wants you to do, you're going to have some persecution. So if things are way too easy and you're getting along way too well with people that don't know the Lord, then there's something wrong. Not saying you can't be friends. I had a lot of friends that were lost, but our friendship only went so far. We only had so many things in common. And when it comes to exhausting the nation of Israel, this is what the enemy wants. This is what the enemy wants from every born-again believer. He wants to destroy and defeat you utterly so that way you have no hope. Now, you may have hope because you have Jesus Christ and you're saved, but a Christian can still be to the point where they are impoverished, where they are just exhausted, and they feel like a lost person, that they have no hope. And this is exactly what the enemy wants. He wants to blind your minds. In 2 Corinthians 4, 4, he already blinds the minds of the lost so that way they don't get saved. But take a look at, hold your spot here and take a look at John chapter 12. John chapter 12. Actually, go over to 2 Timothy 2. Sorry, go to 2 Timothy 2. I want to look at this one instead. 2 Timothy chapter 2. Hold your spot in Judges and go to 2 Timothy chapter 2. All right, 2 Timothy 2, and uh, somebody read for me verse 26. Actually, do 25 and 26. Go ahead, Sammy. And make this instructing those that oppose themselves, and God's, and God's presenter will give them repentance to the, knowledge, to the acknowledging of the truth, and that they may recover themselves out of the snare of the devil who are taken captive by him at his will. So verse 26 is our focus. It says... And that they may recover themselves out of the snare of the devil who are taken captive by him at his will. Now, this is talking about lost people for sure, but this is also talking about people that are saved. Saved people have the ability to give the devil room for them to be entrapped in a snare. And when they are in the snare, they are taken captive by the hand of the devil at the devil's will, doing the devil's will. So it is possible for you to be saved and still doing the will of the devil rather than the will of God. And so it's very important, very important. And for you in the senior high, Bobby just finished the whole series of the will of God for your life. And so if those seven things are not happening in your life, then whose will are you accomplishing? Not God's. There's something that has snared you that now you are following the will of the devil. So be careful. The nation of Israel, they are ensnared and they are in the hands of the Midianites and they cry out to the Lord. And Jesus Christ is our hope. He is sure and he is steadfast. And it's very important that we need to recognize when we're in these moments where the enemy wants to persecute us and to really oppress us. And so now they cry out unto God. Now take a look at verse seven, back in Judges six. Verse seven, we're gonna try to move this pretty quick. Verse seven. And it came to pass after they cried unto the Lord and it came to pass when the children of Israel cried unto the Lord because of the Midianites that the Lord sent Gideon. Is that what it says? No, what does it say? The Lord sent a prophet. The Lord sent a prophet unto the children of Israel, which said unto them, Thus saith the Lord God of Israel, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you forth out of the house of bondage, and I delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of all that oppressed you and drave them out from before you and gave you their land. And I said unto you, I am the Lord your God. Fear not the gods of the Amorites in whose land ye dwell, but ye have not obeyed my voice. So this prophet comes in and what does he do? Yeah. Yes, he talks. And what does he say? What kind of a message is this? Hey, hey, great job, guys. Reminding them of what God did. Reminding them of what God did. 
And go ahead. Correction. Correction. Rebuke. It is in their face. You know, people that are really low and struggling, they don't like to receive correction. Right? When you're already hurting, you don't like to receive correction. But what do you need? Correction. It's very important. I've seen many people that they are low, and then you go in to help them and correct them and say, hey, man, you need to walk with God. How much time are you spending in God's word? How much time are you praying? I mean, are you living out the things? And they get all mad. Dude, chill. <laughs> like, why are you getting mad at me? I'm caring for your soul. Like, that's conviction. You know you should be doing something right, and you're not doing it. God is reminding the nation of Israel, you've known what to do all along. I told you from the beginning. I told you from the very beginning what you needed to do to not be in this situation. And how are we here? Because of the choices that you made. So take some responsibility. It's very hard for people that are playing the victim role. It's very hard. And when you're struggling and you're down, you need correction. You need correction. Because in our world today, no one wants to take responsibility for anything. And I'm telling you, one of the best things that you could possibly do is that when you're in a moment where you are struggling and hurting and having a hard time, you need to look at your situation and take responsibility. I am here in this moment, and it is partially my fault or all my fault. I need to take some responsibility here. And if you want things to be different, you have to change. You have to repent. You can't keep doing the same thing over and over again and expecting things to go better and better and better. It's not going to happen. You have to change the way you think. You have to change the way you live your life. You have to, or else it's just going to keep happening over and over and over and over again. It's very important that you understand this and you get this. And the younger you get this, man, the better off that you're going to be. And so God sends this prophet. He rebukes them. This is what God does. And when we're finally ready to listen to what God has to say, because he's been saying it all along, he is always faithful to send a witness to speak truth to us. The issue is, are you willing to listen to it? And I'm not just saying hear it. I mean, actually listen to it. And how do you know if someone is, what's the difference between someone who is a hearer and a true listener? What's the difference? Tell me the difference. Go ahead. A true listener does like what they're told to do. Yes. Yeah. Remember what James talks about? James chapter one. Be not a hearer of the word and not a doer, right? So a listener actually does what God tells them to do. A hearer, I mean, that doesn't do anything. I mean, there are times in, in even in our own house where my kids can hear me, but they don't actually listen to me. And I bet you it's the same in your house too, right? You're given instruction and you hear it, but you don't actually listen to it. If you listen to it, you'll actually do it. And that's why God teaches us these things while we're young and it carries over spiritually as we get older. God is always faithful to give a witness. All right, now let's look at verse 11. Verse 11, now we got Gideon coming on the scene. I got a lot more I could have talked about, but let's go on to some of the more important things. Verse 11, all right. And there came an angel of the Lord and sat under an oak, which was in Ophrah, that pertained unto Joash, the Abiezrite, Abi is right. There you go. Abi is right. And his son Gideon threshed wheat by the winepress to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared unto him and said unto him, 
The Lord is with thee, thou mighty man of valor. Okay, let's hold on a second here. All right, so Gideon, what is he doing? What is he doing here? If you don't know, read it again. What is he doing here? Yes. Yes, he's cutting the wheat down and then he's threshing it. Do you know what that means? So after he would cut it down, he would have them in a stack and he would take a rod and he would beat those stacks so that way the wheat would then fall to the ground, the grains, and then he would scoop them up and they would put them in containers, bags, satchels, Tupperware, I don't know, Rubbermaid containers, nothing. I don't know. They would collect them and then they would probably divide them out. But remember what was going on with the Midianites. What were they doing? Yes, they were destroying the land. They were cutting it down. They were burning it. They were getting rid of all the crop. So here you have this guy who has this little plot of land and they're growing stuff. And do the Midianites know about it? No, obviously not. Otherwise they would have destroyed it. And so here it says in verse, very specifically in verse 11 at the end, to hide it from the Midianites. They were threshing wheat by the wine press. So they were doing it in secret. Because anytime the Midianites would know that they have crop, well, let's destroy the crop. If we can destroy them, maybe we can get them out of our land and we can just take the land back. So this is very interesting. So you have this guy, the angel shows up, he calls Gideon and he calls him a mighty man of valor. Why do you think he would call him a mighty man of valor? Think about that whole situation, everything we just talked about. Why was Gideon called a mighty man of valor? Go ahead. He was going against these people that could have killed him. So he was like, he wasn't necessarily fighting these people, but he, he was putting his life in danger to, yeah. for God's people. So. Yeah, absolutely. In this field that belonged to his father... Some of you hopefully picking up some of the doctrinal stuff that's going on here. In a field that actually belonged to his father, he began threshing wheat against the enemy, hiding it by the wine press. Oh my gosh, there's some doctrinal stuff there too. Whew. Just read Revelation and you'll see that one. And so here you have this guy in the face of the enemy, not only providing sustenance for himself and his household, but just think about it. He's a mighty man of valor by the angel. Do you think possibly... He was giving some of this grain out to the rest of the nation of Israel? Yeah. I mean, how could you do that? How could you have food for yourself and then you see the rest of your nation falling to pieces, dying, and you not doing something about it? How cold-hearted would you be to not do that? And so this angel, the angel of the Lord says, you're a mighty man of valor. That's huge. He doesn't have any weapons. He's not physically fighting per se but he's doing something to provide for his own, for his nation, and he's doing it in secret, but he's trying to take care of everybody. This guy is a tough dude. I mean, he is a tough dude. And think about this, he's hiding it. So do you think he's doing it alone? I think he had a team with him. And we'll see that team here in a little bit in a couple verses ahead. Because think, wouldn't you have a lookout? I would. Hey, they're coming. We need to stop what we're doing. Let's hide it all. Okay, we got it. Hey, we've got this, or they've got this battle over here where I took out a dude. You know, he was spying out the land. Well, let's hide the body. You know, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, you know what I mean? He took out a Midianite. I mean, he could have done that. They're fighting for their people. So he would have had a team. And I think that's really interesting. And so he would have not only been uh, doing this and risking his life, but he would have been in charge of some of these other guys to have them just kind of stir up some courage inside of them in order to go and do this. The man that owned the field, that's his father, men to be lookouts, there were helpers, other people that would coordinate 
And I thought that was really, really cool. And so now you have verse 11 and 12, now verse 13. And Gideon said unto him, O my Lord, if the Lord be with us, because that's what he said, the Lord is with thee, thou mighty man of valor. If the Lord be with us, why then is all this befallen us? And where be all his miracles, which our father told us of, saying, did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord hath forsaken us and delivered us into the hands of the Midianites. And the Lord looked upon him and said, go in this thy might, and thou shalt save Israel from the hand of the Midianites. Have I not sent thee? I love this. Okay, so in verse 13, he responds to God by questioning God. Why has God allowed it to be this way? Where is he? I mean, I think that's a valid question. But what kind of questioning is this? I mean, is he having a bad attitude about it? He could be, but yet he's still doing whatever is necessary to care for God's people. If he was really having a bad attitude, do you think he would be threshing wheat? No, he was working. So while he's working, he's talking to God and he's struggling. He's a normal human being. We don't see things from God's perspective. So he has these questions, but he moves forward in faith with God. And so God doesn't even give him an answer, by the way. Do you notice that in verse 14? God did not give him an answer at all. You know how many times you might have questions and God just doesn't answer you? So if God never answers your question, do you still believe him? Do you still trust him? Do you still follow him? You should. You absolutely should. And so then Gideon, after getting this response, God says, go, go in this thy might. I love that. You know what Gideon's might was? What he was doing. I mean, think about that. What other man has courage like that to get a group of guys together and go and do something subversively against the enemy to care for God's people? Go in this thy might. You worship me. You love my people. You love the land. You want to do what's right. Go in this thy might. Now, I love that. That's amazing. Okay. And then take a look at verse. Um, so he's, he sent him. And then verse 15. And he said, so this is Gideon's response. And he said unto him, O my Lord, wherewith shall I save Israel? Behold, my family is poor in Manasseh, and I am least in my father's house. And the Lord said unto him, Surely I will be with thee, and thou shalt smite the Midianites as one man. So what was Gideon's response? God's like, go, you're going to destroy the Midianites. And then what was his response? How would you characterize his response? Anybody, anybody? Go ahead. Yeah, so how would, we, how would we describe that? Go ahead, Dan. Selfless. Selfless. Humble. Humble. God, I can't do this. Who am I? Like, who am I to go and do something like this? Like, I'm, I'm poor. I'm the least. Is there any, anybody else? Oh, man, grab a hold of this. Oh, grab a hold of this. Every man and every woman in the Bible who God greatly used was a person of great humility. I mean, great humility. I mean, to the point where they were even questioning, are you serious, God? Like, you want me to do this? How in the world am I going to do this? How am I going to do this? Let me just tell you a few. How about this? Listen to this one. Exodus chapter 3, verse 11, or Exodus 4, verse 10 through 12, Moses. 
At first, Moses was kind of arrogant at the beginning, if you noticed. He was going to be the deliverer, and then he killed an Egyptian. But then afterward, God called him, and he's like, who am I? I, I, can't, I can't go. I can't do this. And then God's like, no, I want you to go. But I can't speak well. Like, I can't even, I'm not eloquent of speech. And then God gets mad at him. <laughs> go. I told you to go. Didn't I make your mouth? Didn't I make your lips? Go. I want you to go. And God did great things with him. In 1 Samuel 18, 2 Samuel 7, 1 Samuel 18, it was David. David's like, who am I, God, that you would do this for me? Like, why would I be of anyone? Like, I, I don't understand. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 18, he's already king. And God's like, I want you to be my king. David's like, who am I that you would show this favor upon me? Like, I'm not, I'm not anyone. Why, why would you do this for me? 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 7, Solomon. Same response. God, who am I and who is my father's house that you would give me grace and mercy and favor? In Jeremiah chapter 1, verses 6 through 9, you have Jeremiah. God tells him to go. And Jeremiah's like, what kind, what kind of man am I? How can I go and do this great thing for you, God? And God's like, I told you to go. Now go. I love it. Acts chapter 4. Same thing happens there. 2 Corinthians chapter 10. You have Paul saying the exact same thing. And it's the same thing for you. Like the moment that you think that God can mightily use you to impact all these people, it's not going to work. It's just not going to work. I don't care how skilled you are. I don't care how gifted you are. It's just not going to work. And I would say even in my own life, God has impacted more people through my mistakes, um, through the things in my life that I am the most ashamed of than anything else. And it's not been through my, my talents and my abilities. It's been through those parts of myself that I want to hide from everybody else. And I know what kind of a person that I am. And I need to remember that because the moment that I think I have it all together, it's not going to work. It's not going to work. And Gideon is a great man of faith. He has great humility. How can I save Israel? I'm poor. I'm the least of the least. Exactly. That's why I want you. You're not going to get in my way and you're not going to try to take the credit. I love that. And then God responds. Yeah, you might be poor. You might be the least, but I'm with you. I'm with you. Oh, I wish we had time to go through all these verses. Write these ones down. Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Matthew 28, 18 through 20. And then John 14, verses 16 and 17. John 14, verses 16 and 17. Acts 1, 8. Acts 1, 8. Romans 1, 16. Romans 1, 16. And 2 Timothy 1, 7. Matthew 28, 18 through 20, John 14, 16 and 17, Acts 1, 8, Romans 1, 16, and 2 Timothy 1, 7. Anybody need that again? Do it one more time. Okay. Matthew 28, 18 through 20, John 14, 16 and 17, Acts 1, 8, Romans 1, 16, and 2 Timothy 1, 7. So the reason why Gideon can go is because God says, the Lord says, I am with you. I'm with you. I'm with you in this thing. And here's the reality. If you're born again today, if you belong to the Lord, if you have trusted Jesus Christ as your savior, 
God is with you. He is with you. He has promised to be with you. Matthew 28, Jesus says, And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. That's what he says. In John chapter 14, verse 16 and 17, God has says that the Holy Spirit, whom he's going to send, so when you're born again, according to Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, it says when that spirit comes, that he is going to indwell you. And here it says that he will be with you, in you, forever, in you, with you. So Jesus is with you. The Holy Spirit's with you. Acts 1, 8 says that when you have the spirit of God, that you have power that belongs to the Lord. It's not your power, it's his, and he gives it to you. Romans 1.16 says, God the Father gives you power through the gospel. It's the power of God into salvation when it comes to the gospel. And 2 Timothy 1.7 says that you should not be fearful. We have a spirit of power, of love, and of a sound mind. And it's because of the spirit of God. So you have the entire trinity with you everywhere you go, everything that's going on in your life, no matter what it is. So here's the reality behind it. You might be fearful, and you should be. Doing the work of God is very fearful. Very fearful. And you may not be the best. And you may not be the most eloquent. And you may not be the most skilled. Good. At least you can look yourself in the mirror and see you for who you are. And God died for you. And you have the power of God to go and do anything that God calls you to do. I don't care what it is. It could be as small as having just a short little conversation with a friend who you've been afraid to talk to to invite to church. Or it could be as big as talking to your entire school about your salvation testimony. It doesn't matter what it is. God is with you in that. You just need to recognize who you are and where that power comes from. And so Gideon now has this, he recognizes this, that God tells him, hey, I'm with you. I'm with you. I'm with you. Okay. Okay. Take a look at verse 16. We just read that one. The Lord said unto him, Surely I will be with thee, and and thou shalt smite the Midianites as one man. And then look at what he says, Gideon's response. And he said unto him, If now I have found grace in thy sight, then show me a sign that thou talkest with me. Depart not hence, I pray thee, until I come unto thee, and bring forth my present, and set it before thee. And he said, I will tarry until thou come again. So he's asking for a sign. And then the angel tells him what to do. Verse 19. And Gideon went in and made ready a kid and unleavened cakes of ephah, of flour. The flesh he put in a basket and he put the broth in a pot and brought it out unto him under the oak and presented it. And the angel of God said unto him, take the flesh and the unleavened cakes and lay them upon this rock and pour out the broth. And he did so. Then the angel of the Lord put forth the end of the staff that was in his hand and touched the flesh and the unleavened cakes. And there arose up fire out of the rock and consumed the flesh and the unleavened cakes. Then the angel of the Lord departed out of his sight. And when Gideon perceived that he was an angel of the Lord, Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God, for because I have seen an angel of the Lord face to face. And the Lord said unto him, Peace be unto thee, fear not, thou shalt not die. Then Gideon built an altar there unto the Lord and called it Jehovah Shalom unto this day. And it is yet in Ophrah of the Abizrites. There you go, Abizrites. And so here he realizes that he's not just talking to any angel. Who's he talking to? Jesus. He's talking to God. This is the angel of the Lord. He accepted a sacrifice of flesh and unleavened cakes, which is very similar to what you find in Leviticus and even in Exodus. And the angel disappears. And then God says, listen, you're not going to die. Do you realize the Bible says Exodus 30? I think it's 30. I wrote it down. Exodus 30, verse 33. 
um, or 33.20, Exodus 33.20, that when you see the face of God, you're a dead man. That when you see God face to face, you're dead. Outside of the grace of God, you're a dead man because God is so holy and you are so not. The, the moment you behold God's face, you're dead. And it's only because of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed on a daily basis. That's Lamentations 3.22. So he realizes who he's talking to. Now, do you think it was wrong or okay for Gideon to ask God for a sign? Do you think it was right or wrong for Gideon to ask for a sign? Can be a bit of a tricky question. <laughs> right? <laughs> Said with a bit of a question. Not a lot of confidence in that one. Could be wrong, could be right. What makes the difference? His heart attitude. What's that? The fact that he's a Jew? No. <laughs> I mean, it could be his heart attitude. God, if you really want me to do this, could you just show me? Or, God, if you really want me to do this, I mean, you're just going to have to show me. Because I, there's a difference there. One is a heart of fear. I need you. I need you to give me some confidence. The other one is, a, is really the, the heart attitude of unbelief. Yeah, right. Okay, God. If you really want to do this, okay, you're going to have to show me. And many of us, I think we don't just believe God. We don't believe God. We don't think that we can do it. We don't think that we can open up our mouth and talk to somebody. Do you realize there are times in my life where I have been, I felt anyway, that I've been the most eloquent at sharing the gospel, that I answered all the questions. You know how effective it was? <laughs> Nada. And there are times where I felt like I, was, I fumbled over myself. I didn't give the right answers or I messed it up. I'm thinking back. I'm like, why did I say that? I could have done this. And then somebody actually gets saved. And I realized, oh, wait, hmm, it's not about me. <laughs> it's about the fact that I took a chance and I just believed God and opened up my mouth, even when I was afraid. So it's not, a, it's not a bad thing to say, you know what, God, I need you to confirm this to me. Are you praying about maybe people that are in your friend group or in your family that maybe you could have an opportunity? God, if, if this is something you really want me to do, could you just, could you give me an opportunity? You know how badly God would want to answer that one? Yes, I've been waiting for you to ask. <laughs> but I think a lot of us, we just don't want to ask or we're just not thinking about it because we don't care enough for people's souls. So it's very important. And then Gideon realized that he was talking to the Lord and then he built an altar. So after our context, we have God's calling upon his life. And now we have consecration. Now the rest of this is going to go pretty quick. I'm going to try to bust through this as, as fast as I can, uh, but still leave room for you guys to be able to do some application. Consecration. All right, so he is going to obviously accept this call. And so God gave him this thing and he answered it. And so he's like, okay, I'm in, I'm in. Jehovah Shalom, God is peace. God brings peace. And now he's in, he's in. Verse 25, and it came to pass the same night, God did not waste any time at all whatsoever. The same night, the same night that the Lord said unto him, take thy father's young bullock, even the second bullock of seven years old and throw down the altar of Baal that thy father hath and cut down the grove that is by it. And build an altar unto the Lord thy God upon the top of this rock in the ordered place and take the second bullock and offer a burnt sacrifice with the wood of the grove, which thou shalt cut down. What? Do you realize what he just asked him? Like, do you really realize the weight of what he just asked him? All right, Gideon, you're going to be my man. So here's what you're going to do. You're going to go to your dad's idol 
that not only he worships, you'll find out in a little bit, but the whole town worshiped. He was at his father's place. And I want you to break it down and then go to the grove that's next to it, which also belonged to Baal, by the way. They're always intertwined. Baal worship and he's worshiping in the groves. Cut down that wood and I want you to repurpose it. I want you to take that wood. I want you to build me an altar to the Lord on a certain place in a certain way. And I want you to offer a sacrifice on it. Ooh, you think his poppy's going to be a little mad? <laughs> yes, his dad's going to be royally ticked. I mean, really mad. The nation of Israel worshiped Baal, Baal at this point in time. They did not worship the Lord. The majority of the people worshiped false gods. This was a big deal. This was a big deal. Okay, so let me tell you something. When you are willing to say, all right, God, I'm in. Guess it's going to happen. Something big is going to happen. Okay, if you're in, I need you to do this. <gasps> what? <laughs> I didn't sign up for this. Yeah, you did. Because <laughs> you said that I'm your Lord and I'm your God and that you will do whatever I ask you to do. So let's put it to the test. This is a very easy way to flush out lukewarm Christians, people that aren't legit. Jesus said, you'll know them by their fruits, right? I mean, you don't need fruit in order to be saved. Like there, you don't have to have evidence in order to, to say, yeah, I've trusted Jesus Christ as my savior. But I will tell you, your faith is called into question when there is no fruit. And rightly so. Am I wrong? I mean, how do you know if milk is spoiled? It's sour. And how do you find out if it's sour or chunky? Yeah. You taste it. What do you do? Make me taste it. Make me smell it. <laughs> you have to actually do something. Or you could just look at the label and read and say, oh, it's expired. But there are some things that are okay after expiration. I know that's hotly debated, especially in my household. But however, <laughs> you'll know them by their fruits. So if it looks bad and smells stanky, it's probably bad. I mean, am I off? How do you know when you need to shower? You smell bad. And not only do you smell it, but then the people around you just start avoiding you. I mean, you should probably do something about that. You know what I'm saying? Okay, so it's the same kind of a thing. Your faith, your faith has to be tested. If your faith is never tested, how do you know it's legit? Like, how do you know you really belong to the Lord and that your faith is real unless it's, it's, it's been tested? Unless it's been tested and it's been put under the weight of a circumstance, how do you know it's real? I'm telling you, I have been in some of the most excruciating moments in my life where it could have been, I guess you could say, easy to give up on God and just forget it all. I couldn't. I couldn't. And God carried me through it. I can make all the mistakes in the world and I can doubt it, but I know that when the push comes to shove, I am not going to turn my back on the Lord. Because I've been in some of those moments and I know I'm going to be there again. And I know what he's done for me. And how could I do that to the Lord? And yet there are Christians, like that joke of a video, <clears throat> they go from church to church to church to church to church. Well, I just don't like their music. <laughs> you know? 
Oh, parking lot's too full. There's way too many people here. There is not enough people here. Okay, like, come on, really? Are you in it for all that? I'm in this thing not for me or for anybody else other than Jesus Christ. That's it. That's it. I don't care what's going on. Just because somebody gives me some sort of a bad attitude, I'm going to stop going to church. Like, for real? Someone's going to give me a hard time and, and maybe persecute me, and I'm just going to stop reading my Bible and walk away and never come back? I mean, a, a pastor is actually going to make a giant mistake and actually not even be a Christian, and yet they've been in that position all along, and that's going to be my excuse to never go to church ever again? Like, I'm not in this for anybody else other than God and God alone. That's it. But I had to go through some very tough situations in my life for that to be proven that I'm not in this for any other reason. And you won't know unless it's actually been tested. So here's my question, I guess. Are you putting yourselves in situations where your faith can be tested? Are you putting yourself in situations where your faith can actually be tested? Are you opening your mouth when God gives you an opportunity to speak about him? Or are you keeping it shut? When you have an opportunity to honor your parents against your own emotions, are you choosing to obey and to honor your parents against how you feel or what you think? Are you reading your Bible and praying to God when you don't really want to? I mean, are there things where your faith is being tested, where you just don't, you're not feeling it? And yet, that's exactly what you need to do. If your faith has never been tested, you're probably not saved. And I'm not saying that just to call it out. I'm just saying it because you need to check this out. I mean, you really need to work this out. Your salvation and your faith between you and God is the most important thing that you can ever deal with in your life. I don't care if you're mad at me. I don't care if you're mad at someone else who tells you this. I, it doesn't matter. It is the most important thing that you must come to grips with in your life. If you do not know that you're saved, you need to get right. If your faith is not legitimate and real, you need to make sure above anything else. Because when the moment comes where you die and you will, your flesh and your heart is gonna fail. And the moment that it happens, do you have assurance that you will be with the Lord and you will see him face to face? That is the most important decision you will ever make in your entire life. Outside of that, nothing else matters. I don't care what career you pick. I don't care what spouse you marry. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. That is the most important decision you'll ever make in your entire life. So now he's in, he's in. And so what does he do? He cuts it down. Verse 27, then Gideon took 10 men of his servants and did as the Lord had said unto him. And so it was because he feared his father's household and the men of the city. See, he still was afraid, but he was obedient that he could not do it by day, that he did it by night. Well, that coward. Yeah, right. Try to put yourself in that situation. That took some serious guts. He was afraid and he did it anyway. That's courage. That's courage. I love that. Verse 28. And when the men of the city arose early in the morning, behold, the altar of Baal was cast down and the grove was cut down that was by it. And the second bullock was offered upon the altar that was built. And they said one to another, who hath done this thing? And when they inquired and asked, they said, Gideon, the son of Joash, hath done this thing. Then the men of the city said unto Joash, bring out thy son that he may die because he hath cast down the altar of Baal and because he hath cut down the grove that was by it. And look what his dad said. And Joash said unto all that stood against him, will ye plead for Baal? Will ye save him? He that will plead for him, let him be put to death whilst, whilst it is yet morning. If he be a God, Baal, let him plead for himself 
because one hath cast down his altar. Therefore, on that day, he called him Jerubbabel, saying, let Baal plead against him because he hath thrown down his altar. I love this. This is amazing. So the dad could have just said, yep, you know what? My son needs to die. But what does he say instead? It's very similar to Elijah. Remember Elijah and the prophets of Baal? Same thing, the exact same circumstance. If Baal is a God, then let Baal plead for himself. If he's real, then just let it unfold. And if he's dead by the morning, then we know that Baal's real. And guess what happened? Nothing. Because Baal's a false God. And that's why the Bible says that there is no God but one, and that is Jehovah God, the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. There is none beside him, none beside him. And so nothing happens. Nothing happens. And I'm telling you, if you're willing to choose to do what's right, it will pay off in the end. It may not feel like it in the moment, but it will pay off in the end. It will. I'm telling you, it will. And you're going to have to take it by faith. If you've never experienced it before, you're just going to have to take it by faith. You're going to have to trust God on this. Being obedient is always better. Being obedient to the Lord is always better. Tell me a time where it's, it's actually been a better decision to disobey God. Yeah, that's what I thought. You know what I mean? We just have to be sound in our mind. And that's part of the problem. So consecrated. Gideon is now consecrated unto God. He's ready. And I'm telling you what, you know what kind of courage this would have given him? Oh, it would have given him a ton of courage. All right, and then lastly, confirmation. Confirmation. Verse 33. Then all the Midianites and the Amalekites and the children of the east were gathered together and went over and pitched in the valley of Jezreel. So now war's a brewing. Verse 34. But the spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon and he blew a trumpet and Abiezer was gathered after him. Does that sound familiar? Abiezer was gathered after him. Does that sound familiar? Yeah. Um, you may not know. It's okay. Take a look at verse 11. Look at verse 11 again. Who'd that be? Yeah. The dude that owned the field. His dad. Wait a minute. Didn't his dad worship Baal? Hmm? Huh? Didn't he just cut down his dad's grove? Uh huh? So didn't he just kind of win his father to the Lord? Hmm? And everyone that belonged with him. The first ones to join. The very first ones to join. The people that were closest to him. And by the way, his dad was the one that provided the field to grow the crops in order to feed the rest of the nation of Israel. This is big. This is big. So he blows the trumpet. His dad's household was gathered after him. And then throughout all Manasseh, which is his tribe, who also was gathered after him. And he sent messengers unto Asher and to Zebulun and to Naphtali. No doubt they were close by and they came up to meet him. And so now he's ready. He's ready. So the enemy moves in and God moved Gideon to gather these men. And it started with his own household. And then it went into his friends and acquaintances in his own tribe and then out to others. Now, let me tell you something about this. This is big because now Gideon, now Drubable, has a incredible testimony. Your testimony is one of the most valuable assets that you possess outside of your salvation. It is one of the most valuable assets that you possess because when the time comes for you to do battle with others for the Lord, you're going to need your testimony. 
Otherwise, you're going to be a giant hypocrite and no one's going to want to follow you. You can't fool anybody. I mean, people know who are legitimate Christians and who aren't. They know. They know. I remember when I was at school, there were kids that said that they loved God, that said that they were saved, and I'm like, yeah, no. They're not. They're not living for the Lord. They're living for themselves. They're doing all the things that they want to do. And I was guilty of it too at times. I did not have a perfect testimony. But that was something that really made me mad. It made me mad. It made me mad that other Christians were out there giving me a bad name. It made me upset. Because how in the world am I going to try to minister when this other person is calling themselves by the same God that I worship, and yet when I go to minister to that person, they think this other person is a hypocrite, which now gives this other person a reason not to believe. So because Gideon took a stand, and he was willing to take a risk, God gave him an incredible testimony. And then when the time came for battle, man, they gathered around him, and they were ready to go. But if you don't have a good testimony, which means you're not living with the Lord day in and day out and letting him change your life, then when the time comes to fight, you're not going to be prepared. You're not going to be prepared. And then verse 36, And Gideon said unto God, If thou wilt save Israel by mine hand, as thou hast said, behold, I will put a fleece of wool in the floor. And if the dew be on the fleece only, and let it be dry upon all the earth beside, then shall I know that thou wilt save Israel by mine hand, as thou hast said. And it was so, for he rose up early on the morrow and thrust his fleece together and wringed the dew out of the fleece, a bowl full of water. And Gideon said unto God, Let not thine anger be hot against me, and I will speak but this once. Let me prove, I pray thee, but this once with the fleece. Let it now be dry only upon the fleece, and upon all the ground let there be dew. And God did so that night, for it was dry upon the fleece only, and there was dew on all the ground. So he confirmed it again. God beseeched God to confirm it, confirm this calling, and God confirmed it. Again, I want to bring this up. There's nothing wrong with going to God over and over again. There's nothing wrong. But you need to keep moving forward by faith. Like there's nothing wrong with saying, God, are you sure? Just keep moving. God, are you sure? Keep moving. Are you sure? Keep moving. It's the people that say, God, I ain't moving until you do this. Okay, that's not going to work. No. God, are you sure? Are you sure you really want me to do this? I'm willing to do this, but I'm terrified. And just keep moving forward with the Lord. But a lot of people don't even want to do that. They just don't. And so here we have Gideon. He's getting ready to battle. And chapter 7, next week when we take a look at it, we're going to talk about the battle and everything that unfolds. But here you have this guy who's willing to be called out by God. He's already doing things that are obedient. And God calls him out to do something greater. He's afraid, but he does it anyway. He does not have a heart of unbelief. And then God calls him to test his faith. And he's consecrated to the Lord. He's like, all right, God, I'm in. And even though he's in, he's asking for confirmation. And that's totally okay. So here's my question to you. I want you to take the last couple minutes and I want you to write out something on the bottom. So at the very bottom, you have conforming yourself to God's word. What is one or two things that just stood out to you that you know that you need to do to be obedient? That you know that God's really tugging on your heart to deal with? And maybe it's that you need to really find out if your faith is real or not. That you're not sure if you're saved. Maybe it's, okay, I need to put myself in situations where my faith can be tested. I've got some people, maybe my friends, maybe one friend in particular, that you know that you can take a risk with. Anytime that you obey God, it always involves a little bit of risk. Always. Always. 
But I'm telling you, if God is just nudging your heart to do it, then it's really no risk at all. It really isn't. It can feel like it, but don't let your fear be the thing that stops you from being obedient. So take a minute and write whatever you need to there and then we'll pray. And I'll just pray to close things out here in about a minute.